We do have capacities for reason, and we do have capacities to use that reasoning in order to think about how to do the most good, not just responding to one particular person or one particular image that you've seen. Welcome to The Conversations Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. Let's say that you have $200 you want to donate to a charity. How are you going to decide which charity you should give your hard-earned cash to? In Australia alone, there are over 60,000 registered charities, and they provide a whole range of services, from medical research to food for the homeless. In the international sphere, there are charities that provide money for humanitarian aid, but there are also those that support environmental causes. The options are almost endless, and for someone wanting to make sure their choice is rational, there are so many questions to consider. Like how effective is this organization? How many lives will my donation impact? And does the organization or this cause already receive a lot of money? Well, effective altruism is a social and philosophical movement that tries to provide a coherent framework to helping answer some of these questions. And Peter Singer, one of Australia's foremost moral philosophers and public intellectuals, is a vocal champion of effective altruism. I spoke to Peter Singer about his new book, the most good you can do, which explores some of these questions. Effective altruism is both a, a philosophy and a movement of people who want to essentially make the world a better place, but not just better, but want to use their resources, whatever they might be, time, money, skills, to do the most good they can. In other words, to, to make the biggest possible contribution to making the world better. And it is a relatively new movement that I suppose got going really only in the last five years. Hi, I'm Will McCaskill. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a concept I call effective altruism. It's an idea that profoundly changed my life. It has led me to, to give about 10 to 20% of my graduate stipend, 10% of what I live on to the most cost-effective development charities. It's also led me to set up a couple of non-profits that have spawn something of a social movement. Some philosophy students, Toby Ord and Will McCaskill in particular at Oxford, started thinking about how much good you can do with your life if you're living in an affluent country and you're earning more than you need to get by. Toby in particular started thinking how much he could donate over his lifetime and then he got a figure for how much it costs to restore sight in somebody who's blind, perhaps because of a cataract. And he calculated that over his lifetime he could restore sight for 80,000 people. And he thought that was just an incredible thing to do. And, you know, he hadn't realized that before he did the calculations and he wanted other people to know about it. And together with Will McCaskill, he, they set up Giving What We Can, which was intended to inform other people about this. And around the same time, uh, maybe a little earlier, GiveWell got started and that was an organization that was set up to research charities and find out which are the most effective. Until GiveWell existed, you didn't really know, unless you did a lot of research yourself, which would be highly effective charities to give to. And essentially with those catalysts, it's continued to grow. It seems that many of the effective altruists you describe in your book have backgrounds in finance and computer science, and mathematics even. These aren't the sorts of professions that people think of as bleeding heart professions, so to speak. Why do you think that people from those sorts of backgrounds have played such a large role in the movement? 
I think people from backgrounds in computing and maths and to some extent philosophy have played an important role in effective altruism because it's not a bleeding heart movement. It's a movement that certainly has you know, people who feel strongly about how bad it is that people are hungry or blind or sick and can't get better and uh, people who can relate to their suffering. But they combine that with using their head, with thinking, I don't just want to help one person. If I could help 50 people, it's better to help 50 people. There is a state of mind that says, I'm not just into relating to one person and I'm not going to be satisfied just if I know that I've helped one person. I think it's better to help a large number of people and I'm going to investigate how my resources can do the most good and that's what I'm going to want to do. So the title of the book is The Most Good You Can Do. And that sounds like something that everyone could sign up to, but the word good perhaps conceals a, a lot of disagreement. What do you take to be the good that we should aim to maximize? Certainly we could have people disagreeing about or having varying views about good. And I don't think that effective altruism has to have just one view of the good. But generally speaking, I think most effective altruists would think that minimizing suffering is a good thing. That's perhaps the clearest case of a good thing. If somebody is in pain or suffering or distress, if you can relieve that, it's good. If you can make somebody's life go better in a positive way, so you can actually make them happy, that's a good thing too. Perhaps we would feel it doesn't have quite the urgency of relieving suffering. Generally speaking, if somebody dies prematurely, we think that that's a bad thing. We think that it's good if people can live longer. And then beyond that, uh, we would start to get a range of different views. For example, some effective altruists might want to talk about rights and how they ought to be respected as part of the good. Other effective altruists would say, well, rights are useful as a tool for reducing suffering and giving people better lives, but they're not intrinsically important apart from those consequences. What sort of charities and what sort of reasons for giving would effective altruists take issue with? Well, most obviously, I was just reading in the New York Times today. In fact, there was an article about uh, a man called Geffen who donated $100 million towards the renovation of what used to be, I guess perhaps still is, Avery Fisher Hall, a concert hall at the Lincoln Center in New York. So the renovation of that is going to cost actually $500 million, half a billion dollars, but it's going to be named after Geffen because of his large donation. It's really difficult to think that that could be the best thing you could do with either 100 million or even more with 500 million. When you think of the state of the world, the number of people who are hungry, the number of people who are blind just because they can't afford simple operations to remove cataracts or who will go blind because they can't afford treatment for trachoma, the number of women who, because of obstetric fistulas, are essentially outcasts who can't keep themselves clean and uh, thrown out by their husbands and often by their, their family too. Uh, and they can also be, their lives can be brought back to normal by relatively simple operations costing maybe $500. So you could say for $500 million, you could save a million women in that situation. It's hard to imagine that renovating a concert hall could be doing as much good as that. The effective altruism's approach is very rational, but are you concerned that it runs counter to human nature in some ways because most people are motivated to donate by personal anecdotes and heartwarming stories rather than graphs and statistics do you think that that's a problem at all yeah it's a problem about 
the way we've evolved, really. We've evolved with personal relationships being uh, very central. And although we have evolved abilities to reason and analyse, often they don't motivate us in the same way or don't motivate us perhaps at all without some emotional backing about the direction that we're going in. We have to work with humans the way they are. We can't just redesign humans the way we would like them to be. But we do have capacities for reason and we do have capacities to use that reasoning in order to work out how to do the most good. And that's really what I'm about. I'm trying to get people to say, you know, look, I don't want you to stop feeling things, of course. I don't want you to stop empathizing with people in need. But I do want you to use your reason to think about how to do the most good, not just responding to one particular person or one particular image that you've seen. Someone in Australia can almost certainly do more good from the point of view of the universe by giving almost all of their income away to others who are less well off. Where do you draw the line? When should people stop giving? There is no hard and fast rule. I mean, if you really wanted to go all the way, you would say, I ought to give to the point of marginal utility. That is the point at which if I were to give more than the cost to me, and I mean cost in terms of my reduced quality of life, would be as great as the benefit to some very poor person in terms of that person's improved quality of life. And as you just said, for somebody in Australia, that would involve giving most of your money away, I think. But, you know, I, I don't think there's much point in, in advocating a, a morality for saints because there aren't too many saints. So I think it's more important to get everybody giving something and moving up. I founded this organisation called The Life You Can Save, which sets out a progressive scale of giving that you might give according to your income level. Um, and it starts quite low. It starts at 1% of your income. And I think most people you know, can manage that then moves up from there. But it never gets to um, giving away most of your income because, as I say, I don't think many people will do that. If they do, all praise to them. They've uh, shown the way to, I hope others would be able to follow. Uh, thank you, Madam Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Foreign Affairs. As a member of Cabinet, does the Minister take responsibility not just for the aid cuts, but every element of this unfair budget? We believe that this refocus of our aid budget will deliver effective outcomes. We have uh, been able to take some funding away, but overall there will be a significant aid budget of $5 billion. In recent years there have been a number of cuts to Australia's foreign aid budget. I was just wondering whether you think that governments are justified in having the well-being of their own citizens as their number one concern, or do they have the same kind of moral obligations that you and I do? Governments, uh, I suppose, have the obligation to do the most good in the long run. But given the way the Australian public thinks and votes, a government that gave no more consideration to Australians than it gave to people in poverty anywhere in the world would soon find itself voted out of office. So it's, it's not going to be able to do good for very long. And I think what it did would get reversed. What I would say is a government ought to educate people in terms of what our aid is doing, why it's important, why it matters, and why we should be working up to, at a minimum, the level that the United Nations set back in the 70s 
of 0.7% of gross national income. And instead, we're falling further away from that target. With the latest aid cuts, I've seen it projected that our aid will fall to 0.22% of our gross national income. And I do think that's quite shameful. It's really pretty close to the bottom of the list. Uh, you know, we, we often compare ourselves with Britain, and certainly we think of ourselves as at least as prosperous as Britain. Yet the British government has now reached 0.7%. Um, they set themselves that target, a bipartisan target. I really can't see why Australia couldn't do the same, or even getting up to 1% as just a handful of countries, particularly Norway and Sweden and Denmark and so on, have done in recent years. I have a small thought experiment for you, Peter. If I were to take you to the city's water reservoir and I presented you with two vials, one of them would make people more empathic and the other would make people more rational. And I ask you to choose which one you would like to pour into the reservoir. Which one do you think you would choose? I'd knock you down and grab them both and pour them in. <laughs> that would clearly be the best result. It's quite possible that the empathic vial would do more good the way people are at the moment. I'd like people to be both more empathic generally and more rational. And if people are just a bit empathic, then it's very important that they should be rational. I just have one final question for you, Peter. The most recent UNICEF estimate of poverty-related deaths among children is 6.3 million deaths each year, which is a staggering amount of suffering. Do you think that there are any grounds for optimism? Well, the grounds for optimism come out of exactly the figure that you quoted, the 6.3 million, which is the most recent figure, compared with the figure in the 1960s, when uh, I think in 1960, it was 20 million children dying each year. And the population of the world, of course, has greatly increased. It's gone from, I think, roughly two and a half billion to about seven billion. So despite the fact that we've got more people, we've got only about a third of the number of children dying before they reach their fifth birthday. That's actually amazing. Despite all the bleak media stories you hear, the uh, proportion of children dying before they reach their fifth birthday has fallen so dramatically. So that's very encouraging. Um, of course, it's tragic that 6.3 million children are still dying of avoidable poverty-related causes. And that's one of the reasons we should be helping those organizations that are trying to reduce this toll. But we are making progress, and that's um, a great ground for optimism. Peter Singer, thank you so much for speaking with The Conversation. Good. It's been good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and on TuneIn Radio. If you like this podcast and you have any suggestions, for future Speaking With episodes, please leave a review or comment on iTunes.